As many of you know, I lived in Chicago for a while. I lived in Chicago while I went to seminary. However, I lived out there a full year before I began attending school. I went there September 20, 2004, fresh out of college, to help support my then fiance as she attended Columbia College for a master's degree. And it took me all of five seconds to realize that I wasn't in Kansas anymore, so to speak. First, the rent was double, exactly double, in fact, of what it was in Decorah. I had to be careful about where I walked at night, even as a big guy. And the Rogers Park neighborhood where I first moved to was the most diverse I had ever lived in. The church was the same. The church that I had attended, an Episcopal church, was the most ethnically and economically diverse congregation I have ever seen. With Burmese, Congolese, Sudanese, white and black Americans, and a few Latinos all worshiping together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. with a liturgy that I had never experienced before. Incense, bells, torches. You know, if you want to know why I'm kind of the way that I am, you could, yeah, that church was planted the seeds of that. But that wasn't the only context I knew. I didn't just live in that diverse Rogers Park neighborhood. I also worked in a Chicago suburb for nine months attempting to sell cars. <laughs> Not always successful. And the suburb was a vastly different context than I was used to as well. It was certainly different from Rogers Park. It was a fairly affluent, mostly white population. There's some Latino there, but mostly white, often working in soul-draining corporate jobs. Putting everything together, this was a massive culture shock. I wonder if the early Christians might have felt something similar when they realized who they were with as part of this church. It wasn't what they were used to. Suddenly, they were part of a church with all these weird people. So let's recap. Paul, with the help of his scribe Tertius, is putting the finishing touches on his letter to the church at Rome, which emphasizes God's amazing and unfathomable grace to all, Jew and Gentile alike. And while Paul has not been to Rome yet at the writing of this letter, he does know a number of its citizens. Paul names 27 individuals in this farewell. 27. Some have Hebrew names, others have Greek names, and still others have Latin names. Certainly they spoke different languages. Some he described as his kinsfolk, which may be blood relationship, or shared Israelite ancestry, or their connection in the gospel. Many have, are names of slaves or freed slaves. Some are people of means who financially support the work of the gospel. Phoebe is one of these. And a full third of these are women. A full third. Phoebe has pride of place. Described as a minister of the church at Sencrie and a patroness of many, including of Paul. That would mean her social status would have been higher than Paul's. A Mary is named. Junia, along with Andronicus, who is probably her husband, is named as prominent among the apostles. 
That's right, there is at least one female apostle named in the Bible. Tryphena and Tryphosa are likely sisters. They, along with Persis, are described as laborers in the Lord. There's Rufus's mother, who has been a mother also to Paul. And rounding out the list, we have Julia and Nereus' sister. There's little doubt. In the early church, in a patriarchal society where the male head of the household held all, held all the power, it is remarkable that so many women held positions of leadership and trust in the church. It's almost cliche, but it is absolutely true. Wherever the gospel went, there were women of means there to support it. You see, the people Paul greets at the end of Romans are so much more than a list of names. They give us a valuable snapshot of the kind of people that the Holy Spirit drew into the church. A lot of weird people in a weird community, to be sure. Jews, Gentiles from various religious backgrounds, women, men, slaves, freed slaves, wealthy and destitute, gathered together every week to hear the word of God baptized to receive the Lord's Supper and provide aid for each other and for the poor, hungry, and sick in their context. It was surely exciting and chaotic to be part of such a new community. Sadly, community has suffered greatly over the past two decades, and our responses to COVID, as well-intentioned as they may have been, exacerbated the problem exacerbated the isolation. And unfortunately, we tend to be part of siloed communities with news or music or friend groups that match our preferences and biases. Even churches have fallen prey to this. I should probably not even, especially churches, have fallen prey to siloing. But these names at the end of Romans remind us that the early church wasn't always like that. The only thing many of these people had in common was their call in Jesus Christ. That was it. No other connection than Christ. That's the truth of the church's thriving over the past 2,000 years. Even though we may be anxious about where the church is going these days, the truth is that we are held together in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Whenever we try to be connected through something else, great programming, a vibrant youth ministry, amazing music, or a charismatic and frankly handsome pastor, <laughs> we're abandoning, we are abandoning our call when we try to be connected by anything other than Christ. That doesn't mean we aren't called to do our work well. It means that we can have all these wonderful things at our congregation, and still be light years away from the gospel. After all, we are not a social club. We're not in the spirituality business, doling out a product every week to consumers. We proclaim Christ crucified and risen for the life of the world. It is in him alone that we are connected. It is in him alone that we are united with other people as weird and as strange and as wonderful as we are in a weird and wonderful community of grace. And that's the secret. 
That's what keeps the church the church. There's a wonderful saying out there, keep church weird. Keep church weird. Don't let it be domesticated, a useful tool for politicians or pundits. Don't let it be a siloed assembly apart from the diversity of the human family. Let the church be what God has called it to be, an alternative community united in his son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ makes this alternative community the means of bringing salvation to a broken and hurting world. Yes, the church has and continues to suffer scandal and bad leadership sometimes. It has suffered by being overly concerned with survival and not concerned enough with the gospel it is called to embody. Yet Jesus Christ, through all our missteps, is still our mediator and advocate with the Father. His prayer in John's gospel that they may all be one wasn't just for the 12 disciples. It wasn't just for the early church. It was for us too. Jesus prayed that we may be one as he and his Father are one. Not in a way that eliminates all difference. Not in a way that privileges one cultural way of being over another. But in a way that values who we are and who God made us to be. As our triune God is unity, so we are called to be unified in our diversity. In Christ alone, we are one. We need to sing that song again sometime. And in this unity, we are transformed. This unlikely community of weird people in this weird assembly we call the church is transformed in Christ to something we can scarcely imagine. A community that lives out God's shalom, God's well-being, peace, and wholeness. What a wild, weird, and wonderful community that is. Thanks be to God. Amen.